millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there! Welcome to History in Retrograde. This is the podcast where we use the ancient art of astrology to help us better understand the past. I'm your co-host, Chandler O'Quinn, and joining me live via satellite is my mom! Hi, Mom! Hi, Chandler! How are you? I'm doing very well. Are you ready to begin another grand experiment? I am ready. Let's go! All right, let's give it a whirl! Let's do. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for being there and listening to our show. We're so happy you're there in all the places where you are all over planet Earth. Thank you so much for liking us. Absolutely. Thank you all so much for uh, all of your uh, support, your downloads, your listens, the uh, 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 support that we get online on our Facebook and Instagram and YouTube. It's all uh, wonderful. Uh, We're so uh, just taken aback by uh, the warm uh, support that we get from uh, our listeners who have been listening for a long time, uh, for those who are just joining us now. Um, We uh, are letting everyone know This is our season finale uh, for season three. Uh, So uh, this is season three, episode 21. Uh, We will be uh, going uh, on a little hiatus during the summer. We'll come back a little bit later in the year with season four. Uh, So uh, before we even get started, we just want to thank you all so much for all the support over uh, this last season. Uh, and for those of you, if you've decided to choose the season three finale as your first episode of History <laughs> and Retrograde, welcome. Uh, the way that we do things here is that uh, in a moment, I will give the astrological birth data of a random historical figure to my mother. She will then input that data into the back computer, and out will come the astrological birth chart, where all of the planets, moons, and stars were at the moment that that person was born. She will then do her best to give a blind reading of the chart, telling us what she can about the person's personality traits, motivations, fortunes of this mystery history guest. I will then reveal to her who our historical figure is, give a little background about the person, then we'll come together at the end and figure out how accurate the chart was at predicting what that person would do. And without any further ado, let us begin. Okay. This is a male. All right. Born on the 21st mm-hmm. of September. 
1931. Okay. Do we have a time? 4.20 p.m. <gasps> 4.20 p.m. All right. And where in the world? The United States. Mm-hmm. And the town? Fort Worth, Texas. <gasps> well. Oh, there it is. Okay. All right. This is a male born September 21st, 1931, 4.20 p.m., Fort Worth, Texas. <laughs> I just did a chart for one of our very lovely fans who also was born at 4.20 p.m. Huh. All right. Well, okay then. Uh, this person is going to be very interesting. I can already tell. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Okay. This is uh, a lot. It's a very splashy chart here. Very splashy. And splash means that there's just about something all the way around the chart. There's no concentration in any quadrant. It it really does do the whole, you know, wheel, all the spokes. So uh, very interesting. Okay. All right. So we're going to go through uh, first and uh, read off all the planets. Um, we have sun at 27 degrees Virgo, moon at four degrees Aquarius, Mercury at 10 degrees Virgo, Venus at one degree Libra, Mars at three degrees Scorpio, Jupiter at 14 degrees Leo, Saturn at 16 degrees Capricorn, Uranus at 18 degrees Aries, Neptune at six degrees Virgo, Pluto at 21 degrees Cancer, North Node at 5 degrees Aries, Chiron at 23 degrees Taurus, and we have an ascendant of 13 degrees Aquarius. So, we're going to start with the ascendant at 13 degrees Aquarius and hope that this is an accurate birth time. Um, so, a person who has Aquarius rising is going to be a very unique person. This person could dress in interesting ways. This person could um, seem even alien or futuristic. Um, anyone who has Aquarius on the first house is going to be really unique and uh because uranus rules aquarius and uranus is all about innovation and invention and futuristic ways and all of these kind of things so i'm interested once we find out who it is i hope i know who it is if that fits so um in the first house uh we also have uh pisces um but we don't have any planets in the first house so what I'm thinking by what I'm seeing is that this should have been a person who came across very creative and innovative when you meet them. Okay. Uh, then uh, clearly we see that uh, per this birth time, this person has an interception. Chandler, you see this? Yes. His second house, Aries, has no house cusp because it's uh, enclosed within the second house cusp being Pisces and the third house cusp being Taurus. So in this person's second house, 
uh, they have North Node in Aries, uh, conjunct by sign, not by degree, Uranus in Aries. I find this very interesting. I find all interceptions very interesting. And, and uh, there's only a few ways to get to these calculations. And the way I'm doing it is um, Western tropical astrology with Blasted's houses. Uh, so North Node in Aries, to start with, is going to be a very passionate person. Uh, your North Node is the direction you're supposed to go. If he was not following the direction he's supposed to go in this life and he chose to go with his south node which is what supposedly you've already done before in other lifetimes uh he would have south node at five degrees libra and um so we'll see we'll see if this person was a person who went out and conquered things or if this was a person who was more of a negotiator we'll have to see uh, which one person, would be which the more negotiating would be the Libra, but see, he also has Venus and Sun. He has Sun at 27 degrees Virgo, and he has Venus at one degree Libra. See this? Mm -hmm. But his house, his Libra house is also intercepted because it's directly opposed from his Aries house, all right, where they're enclosed. They don't have house cusps to open up to. So... With that said, this Uranus um, in Aries, conjunct by sign, North Node in Aries in the second house. This is, it should be innovative ways, because it's Uranus, innovative ways with finances, okay? Quite the ability to be a tycoon, if not a tycoon, then maybe some new um, some new way of looking at valuables and finances with this person's attitude towards that being very um, competitive and Mars-like, if that makes any sense. But it's inside of this, so he might need the assistance of someone who has Aries planets in their chart to open this up. It's possible. Third house cusp is Taurus, and we have Chiron in Taurus at 23 degrees. Um, this is giving us... It looks like two Gemini house cusps and two Sag house, house cusps. I'm pretty sure that's what we've got here. So with that in mind, third house cusp is uh, Taurus with Chiron there. Chiron being the wounded healer. Chiron and Taurus has to do with uh, wounds either in childhood or wounds in past lives with regard to um, valuables and somehow through communication because it's third house which is ruled by Gemini there's some kind of healing 
healing, maybe through this innovative way of dealing with finances, but this is communication. It's in Taurus. Taurus tends to be a very methodical, slow communicator. They're not fast and mercurial like Gemini and Virgo. They're very slow. Uh, I would think very careful choices of words for this person. Healing, healing through very careful choices of words. Okay. Fourth house cusp is Gemini and fifth house cusp is Gemini because we have this interception. Fourth house cusp in Gemini, communication around the home, something to do with communication in the home, the neighborhood, the community, the state, the country, something about communications, but this person doesn't have any planets in that house. A uh, fifth house cusp is also Gemini, which would give a very mercurial way of dealing with home and also entertaining, entertainment, um, romance, hobbies, children. All of these things have a very childlike behavior. Home in the fourth house and fifth house, which is ruled by Leo, but there's no planets in there. Sixth house is ruled by Cancer, and we have Pluto in the sixth house. So somehow we have new ways. I'm not sure what this person does for a living, but somehow there's new ways of doing things and new ways of, of healing from the past. And this is Pluto, which is death and rebirth, which is... um. And it's in the sixth house, which is work and day-to-day. Pluto is a very, very powerful planet. And having Pluto in the sixth house also tells me there's this, there's something very powerful about this person's day-to-day, and it deals with nurturing. Um, because nurturing also health. And could deal with food because cancer is also food and nourishment and nurturing. The sixth house does change to Leo here, but we don't have anything in Leo in the sixth house. On the seventh house cusp, we do have Leo and we have Jupiter there in Leo. We also have because of the Placidus house system, we have Neptune conjunct Mercury in Virgo by degree, all right? Because his Mercury is at 10 degrees and his Neptune is at six degrees. And this is in the seventh house of partnerships. So we have Jupiter in Leo and Neptune and Mercury in Virgo, all in the seventh house. That's a very powerful seventh house. That is also a never-ending number of partners. There will always be partners for this person um, because Jupiter's there. If Jupiter's in your seventh house, wherever Jupiter is, you're going to get a lot, a lot of whatever it is. And in this situation, it is Leo. So Leo represents 
leadership, romance. In this case, it's partners. Um, there's a lot of romance there. Neptune is not as comfortable in Virgo as Mercury is. Mercury is very comfortable in Virgo because Mercury rules Virgo. So whoever this person is, they should have this interesting um, ability to communicate their imagination because they have Neptune conjunct Mercury in Virgo. And that can also be the sign of like a writer or an author. Okay. And somehow it's in the seventh house. So maybe they had a, a partner. Maybe they were partners with someone that they created with. I'm not sure. We'll have to find out who it is. Then in the eighth house, which is the house of legacy, we have the sun at 27 degrees Virgo, and we have Venus at one degree Libra in the eighth house. Eighth house represents legacy. It represents um, death and rebirth. It represents a partner's finances and partner's um, valuables. It represents um, hidden things, secret things, taboo things, sex. Um, I think that's pretty, I think that's most of what it represents. But having the sun in the eighth house is going to give you an interesting Scorpio twist to your sun and your Venus. Because that Venus is in Libra in the eighth house. Or it could be that your romantic partner is very well known or a legacy or that your wealth is your legacy. All of those could apply here because it's eighth house. A ninth house cusp is Scorpio because we have no Libra house cusp because of this interception. So in order to get to the Libra Venus, because we are, we're fine with the Virgo sun because it is not housed inside of this Libra house that is encapsulated between Virgo and Scorpio. So in order for them to be able to get to their Venus, to the way they love and the things they love, they would need this to be activated by someone with Libra placements, maybe. Now we have ninth house cusp is in Scorpio and we have Mars in Scorpio at three degrees in the ninth house. Very interesting. Mars in Scorpio is not to be trifled with. Uh, I would say that Mars in Scorpio, Mars in Aries, um, maybe even Mars in Leo are some pretty intense placements for Mars with Scorpio possibly being the most dangerous of all of those. Because, uh, Scorpio will not relent. Mars and Aries wants to win and they're very passionate. Uh, Mars and Scorpio also wants to win, but Mars and Scorpio could win by any means. So you don't want to get on the wrong side of a Mars and Scorpio. And this person has it in the ninth house, which is philosophy, dogma, religion, travel, higher education, 
university level education. Um, and their Mars is there. So they're very passionate about these things. Uh, is this making sense so far at all? Mm-hmm. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, their Midhaven is at 29 degrees Scorpio. And they have, uh, it is possible actually, if I could see this closer that both of these house cusps are Scorpio and Taurus because they're right on the line. See that Chandler? Yeah. They're right on the line. So this could be double Taurus, double Scorpio. I'm leaning that direction because I'm seeing where this Midhaven is right here, right at 29 degrees and at 29 degrees. But I'm not exactly sure. But Either way, the Midhaven is at 29 degrees Scorpio, okay? And that gives them a very powerful, uh, like a very powerful aspect to their career, okay? Um, their 10th house cusp looks like it is Scorpio. And they don't have any planets in there. But with that as your 10th house, I can, the career must have been, um, I want to say it was, it was known. Like this is, this person maybe is known for their career. Then their 11th house cusp is, um, Sagittarius. They don't have anything in their 11th house, but having Sagittarius on your 11th house would, would uh, make you, it should make you very liked by groups of people. Then the 12th house cusp is Capricorn. And in the 12th house, we have Saturn at 16 degrees Capricorn and the moon at four degrees Aquarius in the 12th house. That is definitely karma with the mother, karma with women in a very logical way moon in aquarius is logical about your emotions and saturn in capricorn saturn is at home in capricorn saturn rules capricorn some kind of karma because 12th house is karma it's also institutions uh international travel um Things you have to uh, address from the past. They have Saturn and Capricorn there. There's something about lessons with money, lessons with finances, lessons with business. Is this still making sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you have any questions? What is his relationship with his mother? If this birth time is correct and this moon is in the 12th house, uh, I would say that his mother, with this moon in Aquarius, his mother should have been kind of, um, if not unique and different, then it, somehow if his moon is in the 12th house, he has karma with his mother. So he could have been very close to his mother or he could have had 
lessons dealing with his mother. There's, there is some significance about his mother because it's a 12th house. How would he do with controlled substances? Well, his Neptune is in Virgo. So I almost want to say if there were a controlled substance situation, it might be with prescriptions because Virgo is medicine. Um, I'm looking at anything else in the chart, but I think that that would be the situation. Having Neptune in Virgo, um, would almost make you, if you were going to do that dark side thing, it would make whatever you're doing medical. Like, is it something you inject? Is it something that is prescribed? Something that has to do with medicine. Is this an open-minded person? I want to say no. Uh, I don't think this is the kind of a freewheeling person. I think that this, if this is the correct birth time, this Aquarius rising uh, hides this stellium in Virgo, okay? He has sun at 27 degrees Virgo, Mercury at 10 degrees Virgo, and Neptune at 6 degrees Virgo. That's going to make him very analytical. It isn't going to make him like, freewheeling and like park wherever man that's not this guy this guy has mars and scorpio he's got saturn and capricorn he's got moon and aquarius north node conjunct uranus in aries he's got a lot of stuff here that does not tell me he's a freewheeler what profession do you think he'd go into well, if this is the correct birth time and he has North Node conjunct Uranus in the second house, it could be finances, money, innovative ways with money. He has Saturn in Capricorn in the 12th house, which would tell me more about entrepreneurship, business. He's got all this Virgo, which tells me there's a lot of details involved. He's got this Jupiter in Leo, which gives him some drama, you know, gives him some light, light, lightness. But he's got this Mars in Scorpio uh, in the ninth house, which is going to be interesting because I, I, I would like to know, you know, how this plays out. Um, and Pluto in, I think it has something to do with business and money. How would he do with money? He should do pretty well with money. He has North Node in Aries and Uranus in Aries in the second house. Now, the issue with Uranus is that he could have explosive situations with finances if this is the right birth time and this falls in the second house but he has saturn in capricorn in the 12th house which means he has karma 
with business. His Mars in Scorpio in the ninth house. I think he has, um, I think he's got, he has what it takes because he's got, you know, the stellium in Virgo and Jupiter in Leo, which is a lot of stuff. Could even be a lot of gold. It could just represent Jupiter a lot, Leo gold. You know what I mean? So I would think he would do, he has the capability to do really well with money, like be a mogul. Okay. But with this Uranus here, there could be a problem. And he's, his Uranus and his North node falling in this Aries house that is intercepted could pose a problem. So all of this again, depends on how close are we in his birth time, you know? Mm-hmm. How would he do with monogamy? Well, <laughs> he does have Jupiter and Leo in the seventh house. Uh, it's possible he could be very monogamous. A Leo can be very monogamous. But when Jupiter is in Leo in the seventh house, that's a lot of partners. That's that's a, an opportunity for a lot of partners. What is he looking for in a partner? Honestly, I think he likes a partner who is wild and dramatic. I think he likes someone who is not like him. I think this person, except for this North Node and this Uranus here in Aries, I feel that this person feels that they need to be in control of themselves. But with this Jupiter in Leo, that's a wild card. So it's possible that either partners bring out this wild in him, or he really likes a dramatic woman or a woman who's in the spotlight, maybe. Or a partner. I mean, I don't know if he's heterosexual. What kind of leader would he be? It's possible he could be a very good leader. He has North Node in Aries. Uh, this Uranus in Aries is, is, is a conflict. That is, it can be really great, but it can also be really unexpected uh, situations to deal with. And um, he has Mars in Scorpio. Uh, he has Jupiter and Leo. He has several things that give him the opportunity to be a good leader. Uh, Saturn and Capricorn in the twelfth house, Moon in Aquarius would give him should give him a logical mind. He shouldn't fly off the handle too much, you know. Uh, it should keep this Aries situation under control somewhat. Um, he has the potential to be a really good leader if he's using the light side of all of these things. What is his legacy? Well, he has sun in Virgo in the eighth house, if this is the correct birth time. And Venus inside of an interception, if this is the correct birth time. So, as odd as it sounds, I think... 
either his legacy is Venus and Libra. Love, that's love. But his son is there, so... And that's in Virgo. So possibly literal communication, maybe writing or data or something mercurial and Venusian. The problem is, if this is the correct birth time, that Venus is intercepted. So... Mm, something about communication, maybe. But I, there's something about money, if this is the correct birth time. Money and, and business and something like that. Do you have any other final first impressions? I'm actually very perplexed by this person. Um, I think... They might be uh, very analytical, but I, I'm interested. I'm very excited to know who this is and if I know them at all, because they do have a very, very interesting chart and there's a lot of power here. Um, so I'm interested to see how this plays out. I think we're ready for a summary of our findings. Okay. First thing you said is that he would be very unique. He would dress, interestingly, a futuristic mindset. Very creative, innovative. Uh, he could either be a conqueror or a great negotiator. He is innovative uh, with his money. He could be a tycoon. He has new ways of looking at money. Be very competitive about money. Uh, there are wounds to overcome with valuables, uh, but he heals these wounds through communication. Uh, he would be someone who has a very careful choice of words. Uh, communication in the home, uh, in the community, in the country. Mercurial in the home. Uh, entertainment, childlike even. Uh, new ways, innovation. A powerful nurturer in the day-to-day. Uh, there will always be partners in his life. He has an interesting ability to communicate his imagination. Uh, he would want to be partners with someone that they would create something together. Uh, wealth, uh, partners' wealth uh, is connected to his legacy. There's also maybe a legacy with secret things. Uh, he could win by any means. He is passionate about education and religion and dogma. He would be powerful in his career, and his career is something that is known by all. He would be very liked by large groups of people. There is a karma with his mother and with women. He is logical about his emotions. Uh, there could be a good deal of international travel in his life. There are lessons with money and lessons with business. His mother would be very unique. There is karma. There are lessons to be learned regarding the mother. 
Uh, he would be, uh, if there is uh, a problem with uh, controlled substances, he'd be more likely to abuse prescriptions or uh, some sort of uh, medical uh, abuse of drugs. Uh, he is not uh, necessarily an open-minded person. He'd be very analytical. Uh, his profession is money, business. Um, he is very detailed and very analytical. He would do well with money. Uh, there are explosive situations with his finances, but he has the ability to be a mogul. Uh, he could be very monogamous, uh, but there are a lot of partners in his life, an abundance of partners. He wants a wild, dramatic partner. Uh, he needs to control himself, but might like a very dramatic partner. He'd be a very good leader. Uh, he'd be uh, unexpected. There are unexpected situations that he'd have to deal with in a leadership position. Uh, but he has a very logical mind. Uh, he's not likely to fly off the handle. Uh, his legacy is tied to communication and business. Uh, is there anything that I've left out? No, I think that's it. Are you ready to find out whose chart you've been looking at? I am. I'm ready. I hope I'm even anywhere in the ballpark. This is the astrological birth chart of Larry Hagman. What? Mm-hmm. What? Larry Hagman? Really? Wow. I don't know if we have the right birth time for him. You know, this chart, honestly, is a much better chart for the character that he played. JR. Exactly. Yes. This I'm is... wondering if that birth time has to do with that, because that makes a lot more sense for the character that he played on Dallas than for his life. You know what I mean? Yeah. I would push this. I would take this to here. You know what I mean? I would put this Jupiter and Leo maybe in the fifth house or the sixth house of work or maybe into the 10th house of career. But I am not sure that this is the exact uh, chart for him. But maybe, I mean, I don't know. What it, what year was he born again? 1931. Yeah, I don't know if we were doing birth times then. You know what I mean? Accurate ones. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, from what we saw with, with uh, John Wayne, that was... Definitely, he did not have Gemini rising, so I'm not sure that Larry Hagman has Aquarius rising either. I would. I think will his... say he is a pretty sharp dresser, but um, yeah, other but than not. That, He's that... more like a Capricorn rising. I wonder where that would put everything. I don't know, but I'm very interested to hear about Larry Hagman because I mean, I really I loved I Dream of Genie. And, you know, Dallas is Dallas, so mm -hmm. let's do it. Let's hear all about Larry Hagman. So, uh, for those of you who might be a little younger, uh, might not be as familiar, uh, Larry Hagman, one of the great uh, television actors of the 20th century, um, two of the biggest shows, uh, Most, I think both of them are still on television somewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, he played uh, Major Nelson in uh, I Dream of Jeannie, and uh, played, of course, uh, one of the greatest TV 
the villains of all time, uh, J.R. Ewing uh, in <laughs> Dallas. Uh, and uh, so uh, Larry Hagman, he was born September 21st, 1931 in Fort Worth. Uh, he was, uh, his mother uh, was Mary Martin, uh, who uh, was going to, would become a great uh, actress herself, a uh, triple threat, Broadway star, dancer. Um, she was uh, in she was from Weatherford, Texas, and uh, she got married very young. Uh, and she had uh, Larry when she was, uh, I think, younger than 18. Wow. Uh, and was married to Ben Hagman. And Ben Hagman was a, um, uh, a lawyer uh, in, in the community and uh, was a very manic uh, man. Uh, did... Uh, a, a lot of strange things. Uh, mm. So he and the 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 two the mother and father did not stay together very long. Uh, before uh, he was four years old, they had separated, and Mary went out to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And uh, so for a while, Larry was left in Texas, uh, being raised by the grandparents, uh, and then he went out uh, to Palm Springs, where uh, Mary's mother was and so he lived with his maternal grandmother mm-hmm. uh, and Mary was focused on the career and was going out to Hollywood and trying to get all of these contracts and eventually did get a contract with Paramount and started working her way up through the studio system uh, as uh, being uh, as I said a triple threat a singer dancer actress uh, all of it and she uh, became one of the biggest uh, dancers and stars uh, not only of Hollywood but of mm-hmm. the stage mm-hmm. uh, and while all this is going on uh, not a whole lot of attention was paid to Larry um, she sent Larry to uh, the same boarding school that all of the stars kids went to uh, mm-hmm. outside of Los Angeles, uh, which is Black Fox Academy. It was a military academy. And there he uh, grew up with all the Bing Crosby's kids and Bob Hope's kids and all mm-hmm. the, the kids that the, the actor parents didn't want to have to deal with. They sent <laughs> him to the school. Uh, later on, uh, Mary Martin goes to New York and she starts working on Broadway and Larry is again left behind uh, in California with the maternal grandmother, but then she passes away. And so uh, he uh, goes to New York uh, to live with his mother and he would go to several very elite uh, private schools in the area. Uh, But in 1946, after World War II, Ben uh, Hagman, his father, uh, had returned from the war. Uh, He was a decorated veteran and he comes. Uh, back to Texas and Larry ends up moving back with his father in Weatherford, Texas and Mm. it was a complete culture shock for him. He had been uh, uh, in all these elite prep schools and Ben Hackman was a a very proud, strong Texan was going to make sure that uh, his little boy was not going to be some sissy elite uh, uh, private school uh, 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 kid, and so made sure to put him in public school. And uh, if you're going to be uh, a man in Texas, you got to learn how to play football. And so put him into the football team. And uh, he made second string. And Larry, uh, he uh, got injured uh, while playing football and uh, was in a cast for a while. And uh, he discovered all the attention of all the ladies uh, because <laughs> they were so sorry for him. Uh, and uh, he really enjoyed that. But that did not get him off the hook with his dad. 
his dad wanted to make sure he's going to be a real man. So if you're not going to do football, then you're going to do boxing. Oh my! Uh, and so put him into the ring and a gym, and uh, the. Uh, Instructor, the coach, uh, was a man named Jim Wright, and Jim Wright would later go on to become the U.S. Speaker of the House. Uh, oh. So uh, he had a prominent political career, uh, but uh, back in the 1940s, he was just this crazy coach uh, mm -hmm. that was friends with Larry Hagman's crazy dad. Uh, so oh um, Ben Hagman uh, was known as one of the wildest lawyers uh, around, uh, completely unscrupulous. Uh, at one point, uh, he had a client and the client was uh, uh, shooting up uh, a bar and one of the bullets uh, went through the bar into the neighboring house and hit a woman. And Ben Hagman rushed to the scene and pulled out the uh, bullets from the wall in the bar so that it looked like only one bullet went out and went into that house. Uh, and uh, since he did that, it made it look like it was an accident and the guy got off. Uh, so that was the kind of lawyer that Ben Hagman was. Oh, my. Uh, there are all sorts of crazy stories. They'd go off on hunting trips and... Uh, 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 Larry was actually, uh, he was a pretty good shot, um, but he didn't necessarily know anything about the birds that he was looking at. And he had this twenty two rifle, and he goes out and he shoots a buzzard. And uh, Ben was going to teach his son a lesson. So whatever you shoot, you got to eat. Oh, and no. so they get the buzzard, and they prepare it, and they skim it, <laughs> and they... Uh, and that, that was the toughest meal that they ever ate. Uh, and then they had this other trip. They're going down to the border and uh, they took this cook with them. And anything that they got was all going to go and be put into one pot and they were going to make this huge stew out of it. So uh, they're getting squirrels. Larry shot like 10, 12 squirrels and that's going in the pot and possum. And uh, they finish it off with an armadillo. And uh, they put that into the pot and they uh, mix that all up and they, they ate from that for a few days. And, and then later on, uh, Ben uh, is talking to his son uh, about the ladies uh, and how, uh, how he's doing in, in high school. And uh, Larry says that he has a sweetheart, that he has a, a girlfriend back home. And uh, well, uh, Ben goes, well, have you, have you messed around with her yet? And Larry says, no, no, sir. And he goes, well, we, we got to teach you a lesson about that. And so they went across oh the border and they went into a bordello in Mexico <laughs> and, uh, they found one of the, uh, I'm sure charming ladies that was there. <laughs> and, uh, uh, Ben says, this is my son here. I want you to go into that room, teach him everything you can. And so Larry uh, goes into the room with this, I'm sure, very charming lady, and he tries <laughs> to explain uh, in whatever broken Spanish he can, uh, listen here, darling, I I'm going to give you this money, and I want you to go out and tell my dad that you had the time of your life, but I don't want to <laughs> do anything with you. Uh, all right, sugar? And uh, she said yes, and so she came back and boasted to the dad about how great his son was, and that was that. Uh, so that's the kind of dad that that um, 
uh, Larry was growing up with. Also, uh, whenever he was coming back from college or coming back from these boarding schools uh, during the summertime, uh, he was not going to be able to just uh, rest on uh, during the summer. Uh, Dad wanted to make sure that Larry had a job. And one of these jobs, he had uh, him digging ditches uh, for uh, one of the uh, tool companies, uh, the Antelope Tool Company. And he was digging ditches in the middle of the hot Texas summer, 103 degrees outside. It was uh, uh, killing some of the guys out there. And after a few weeks of that, Larry said, I, I can't do this, Dad. I can't do this anymore. They're killing folks out here. You got to get me another job. And so they got him a different job bailing hay. So there was, all, there was a lot of hard work uh, that Larry was expected to do because of his father. Mm. Uh, he graduates school in 1949, and he goes to Bard College in New York, which was this very elite uh, liberal arts sort of school, and he falls in love with drama. He falls in love with the theater, mm -hmm. and um, he also uh, realizes that just not even talking about the theater department, but the whole college, uh, the male-to-female ratio, or the female-to-male ratio was three to one. Mm-hmm. And then in the theater department, he realized that the uh, guys that were in the theater department weren't really interested in the ladies. <laughs> uh, so he got a lot of dates. Mm -hmm. uh, he uh, had a, a girl every day of the week. Uh, and uh, he was uh, enjoying his time. But after a year, uh, he dropped out. And he went uh, into New York uh, to uh, become a working actor. Also, uh, the Korean War is breaking out. And while all this is going on, um, his mother has become the biggest star of the stage and screen. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And uh, when the Korean War breaks out and he goes into, he gets drafted and he goes into the office and he lists his profession as an actor. And the uh, the captain or, or whoever's doing the form says, um, well, you're not really cut out uh, for being in the service, but I can't just dismiss you. Um Maybe you should just claim that you're a homosexual because oh, no. if you if you claim that you're a homosexual, then uh, we'll we'll get you out. Um, uh, you, you'll be discharged. And Larry could not lie; he was not going to lie like that and say that he was what he wasn't. And mm -hmm. so they figured out uh, he he goes into the Air Force and they send him to London, and he becomes one of the directors of the USO shows in London. Oh. So, uh, of all the ways to spin the Korean War, this was a pretty <laughs> nice one. Uh, he hardly even wore a uniform. He was cruising around in the nicest English sports cars and uh, putting on shows. Uh, and uh, all colonels uh, would be coming into town and wanted to get a show, so they'd have to talk to uh, this uh, low-ranking airman uh, to get tickets to go to these shows. So, he was... Uh, uh, he had a very high status. Uh, and while he's doing all this and putting on the, all these shows, he's about 22 years old, and he goes out with um, two sisters. Um, one of them is uh, Jackie, and the other one is Joan Collins. Oh. So uh, he was dating uh, both of, uh, of uh, Joan and Jackie Collins. Oh, my. Um, uh, it didn't work out between them, uh, but a few <laughs> years later, in 1954, uh, he meets um, a Swedish actress, and her name is uh, Mai. Uh, it's spelled M-A-J, but it's pronounced Mai. And uh, they get married in 1954, and they would be married uh, for the rest of their life. And mm. uh, he, he never 
had any infidelities. He uh, was true to her the whole time uh, and uh, loved her very dearly. And my, uh, at one, he had to take my back home to Texas to, mm-hmm. to meet the dad. And uh, the dad was a little skeptical of this Swedish lady. And so he <laughs> takes her out uh, to the backyard and hands her a knife and says, uh, throw it at that tree there. And Mai throws it and sticks it into the tree. And then he just keeps handing her knives and she keeps doing that. And then he says, how are you with a tomahawk? And she goes, I, I don't know. I've never thrown a tomahawk. So she's out there throwing tomahawks at the tree. And then so goes, well, if you're going to be in this family, you got to know how to hunt. So here's a rifle. We're going to go dove hunting. And uh, Mai shot 12 doves. Uh, didn't miss a shot. <laughs> uh, and after that, uh, the uh, dad brought uh, my back home to Larry and said, yeah, she's a keeper. All right. Uh, so um, my passed the test. Um, <laughs> also, Hagman is a, is a Swedish name anyway. So mm-hmm. he, he, the, the, that, that's his heritage. Um, they go back uh, to New York after the war. And he starts getting a lot of stage work and uh, early TV work. Uh, he's really uh, roughing it, but he's not roughing it as much as uh, one of his best friends, and that is uh, Carol O'Connor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Carol O'Connor, uh, who was another working actor at the time in New York, uh, he was so broke he couldn't afford a place with hot water. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, Carol O'Connor and his wife would come over to Larry Hagman and his wife's place uh, on Fridays, and they would have dinner, and then uh, C- Carol and his wife uh, would have hot showers for the first time that week. Oh. Uh, and that was uh, a deal that they worked out uh, uh, during their, their starving years in New York. Hmm. Uh, in the early 1960s, uh, Larry gets his first uh, uh, consistent television work on a soap opera uh, called The Edge of Darkness, uh, which uh, before doing this research, I, I didn't know that that was an actual uh, soap opera. But I remembered the Johnny Carson sketch, The Edge of Wetness, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a parody of, of this soap opera. <laughs> and uh, this, Larry Hackman talks about this soap operas as being the premier acting school. That uh, whatever you learn in stage or in school does not compare to working on a soap opera. Uh, that it's all live. Uh, there, there, nothing's pre-taped. So whatever you are saying goes out into the world that very moment, and they are finding all sorts of ways to put cheat sheets everywhere. There's no teleprompters. There's not even cue cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they are putting script pages on the back of people's uh, uh, couches and lamps and everything. And if you forget a line, he had to learn everyone else's lines mm-hmm. so that he could bail people out of their scene live. <laughs> on television in front of millions of people. And he got so anxious and worked up about this that he would record the entire script into a huge reel-to-reel tape recorder and then he would listen to the tape recording as he went to sleep and then set his alarm every three or four hours to rewind the tape and listen to it again. Mm-hmm. And he knew his lines very well, mm-hmm. um, but he was suffering from insomnia. Uh, oh, he, my gosh. Uh, uh, he was becoming delirious. He was seeing things. Uh, he, his health took a horrible turn. Uh, so they decided he... This was not working out, and so he went back to just learning the lines regularly. But because of all the pressure of being on the soap opera, he starts taking um, amphetamines. 
and uh, he gets uh, hooked on amphetamines mm-hmm. and he's also uh, drinking a lot and uh, he's uh, smoking a lot too and and the story that he tells on how he started smoking was back when he was in high school uh, there was this uh, older girl he was about 13 and she was about 16 mm-hmm. and uh, she was smoking mm-hmm. and uh, she offers him a cigarette and he says uh, no I, I don't smoke and uh, uh, she goes, well, I'll let you touch my breast if, if you take the cigarette. Oh, my gosh. And uh, he said he smoked for the next 30 years of his life. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, he was doing all these things, uh, on the soap opera. He eventually gets off the soap opera. He does a few other acting jobs, uh, in, uh, film. And then, uh, in 1965, uh, he auditions, uh, for this sitcom, uh, I Dream of Jeannie. And, uh, just the perfect chemistry, uh, mm-hmm. between him and Barbara Eden and, um, uh, uh, Major Healy and, and Dr. Bellows. And I mean, I, if you haven't grown up watching this, uh, <laughs> I encourage everyone to go and, and watch. They're the silliest things you'll ever watch, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, and, uh, they, he, he, they did five years of this show and he says they did five years on four scripts. They just did the same four scripts over and over and over again. And he got really tired uh, of doing the same four things over Mm -hmm. and over again. Mm -hmm. And the show was doing really well. And so he uh, started negotiating with the producers. Uh, And one of the things that he wanted was, of course, more money. Uh, So he negotiated and he got one of the higher salaries in television at the time uh, by getting paid $5,000 an episode. Mm Mm-hmm. In late 1960s, that was a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, he also wanted to learn how to direct. So he would uh, start directing some of the episodes of I Dream of Genie. Uh, in the middle part of the series, he also completely falls off the wagon with the amphetamines mm-hmm. and with the alcohol. Uh, and he gets uh, kicked off the set. And they mm-hmm. say that he can't come back. He needs to go to rehab or something. Mm-hmm. He needs to clean out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he... He thought he could fool the guards at the gate <laughs> mm-hmm. if he dressed in a gorilla costume. Huh? Okay. Uh, so he does this and he dresses in a gorilla costume and he pulls up to the gate and the guard says, I'm sorry, Mr. Hagman, you, you can't come in. <laughs> and he just continued uh, every day for the summer coming in in a gorilla costume, except halfway through he changes to a giant chicken costume. Okay. Uh, and they, sorry, you can't come in. You have to go to rehab. You got to clean out. Mm-hmm. He's also learning how to be a pilot at the same time. Oh my and gosh. he uh, thought that it'd be real funny if he uh, uh, flew over the set of I Dream of Genie and opened the door of the plane and uh, urinated on uh, everyone below. Oh, no. Well, uh, when you open the door of a plane, uh, <laughs> wind and everything comes in. Uh, not bad. much stuff gets out. So he just soiled himself mm-hmm. uh, in the plane. Uh, he eventually cleaned out and uh, he stopped smoking uh, and uh, he stopped the amphetamines. Uh, not so much the drinking. He kept mm-hmm. that up. Uh, also, uh, you're getting into the late 60s, and he uh, is introduced at a Crosby, Stills, and Nash concert uh, to LSD. Uh-oh. And 
he uh, did LSD for the rest of his life. Oh, my. Uh, he uh, really enjoyed the mind-altering and the opening uh, uh, experience and imagination that you got when you dropped acid. And oh, so he wow. uh, was doing hallucinogens uh, for the rest of his life, and he claimed that it was v- very helpful for him. Mm-hmm. Um he also, uh, as I Dream of Genie starts coming to a close, it's canceled 1970. Um, he sort of has this spiritual awakening and, uh, he gets, he, he buys this house in Malibu and he becomes known as the Mad Monk of Malibu. Mm-hmm. Um, his wife, uh, Mai, uh, was from Sweden and was used to the hot baths that they had, uh, in Scandinavia. And so she becomes one of the early investors in jacuzzis. Oh. And so they put, uh, a lot of people are introduced to jacuzzis through Larry Hagman and his wife. And so people would go into their home and have a soak, and then they had these custom robes with these hoods, and everyone would come out of the house with these robes and these hoods and go onto the beach, and they would walk down a few miles, and then they would do this weird ceremony where they all held hands and did chants and then break it up. And uh, he also uh, did this thing where he would he would sit in this van, uh, on the PCH, and he would sit in the van, and outside of the van, he had a sign said, uh, "Meet the great uh, Hagmana," and for five cents a minute, you could go in and you could talk to him about anything. <laughs> oh my! Uh, and he started doing this as a as a joke, um, uh, but then people started really coming in with a lot of problems. Oh my! Uh, and he would just sit there and listen to them. He and it's unclear if he's doing this at the same time, but he also uh, when once he goes through this breakdown in in the late sixties, he develops this thing for the rest of his life where he would not speak for one day out of the week. Hmm. Uh, a lot of times that would be Sunday, so he, he would call them silent Sundays, and he would just not speak for the whole day, uh, and that helped him with all, all the things that were going on. Uh, I I don't know. Uh, but, uh, a lot of weird and odd things, uh, that when I had no idea that he was doing when I, <laughs> when I started doing this research, mm-hmm. um, between 1970 and 78, uh, he doesn't get a whole lot of work. There's a few television pilots. There's a few things that go to series for a little bit. He does a few B movies. Um, but it kind of goes back to being sort of a, a struggling actor again. And in 1978, uh, he uh, goes to see his mother perform in uh, New York, and he, uh, his agent gives him two scripts. Uh, mm-hmm. And one of the scripts is for a sitcom very similar to I Dream of Jeannie, and the other script is for Dallas. Ooh. And uh, Mai is the one who is reading through Dallas first, and mm-hmm. she says, Larry, this is it. The, mm-hmm. You're going to love this. Every one of these people is despicable. Uh, you're going to love doing this. And he picks up and goes, yes. And, and he goes, uh, who is, who's going to be the mom? Uh, uh, and uh, uh, the, they say it's, it's Barbara Belgetti's. Mm-hmm. And he goes, oh, well, then I have to do it. Mm-hmm. And so he uh, gets in and it started out as a, a made for TV movie followed by a mini series about four episodes and then they were going to pick it up to be a series mm-hmm. and he just completely steals the show mm-hmm. uh, he already knew who this character was he based it yeah. off of the 
the guy who he worked for when he was digging ditches. Mm -hmm. Uh, So a guy named Jess Hall Jr. Mm -hmm. But he knew a hundred of these characters growing up in Texas. Mm -hmm. Uh, He knew what this was, who this guy was, and embodied it. So well, he's one. You just you love you love to hate him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you when he gets that smile on his face after he's done something dastardly or said some great line, uh, uh, it, it's one of the great performances. And he in real life he couldn't have been any more different from Jr. Everyone loved him. Every he was the life of the party. Always jokes. Always supporting people. Always giving people money when they needed it. Uh, but playing this character was so fun for him and that fun oozes out onto the screen and the show really wasn't supposed to be his show the Mm -hmm. show was this romeo and juliet story uh between the barneses and the ewings and the two that fell in love it was supposed to be pam and bobby's show Mm -hmm. but what ended up happening is while they were filming scenes with pam and bobby talking and doing the dialogue well you have now Larry Hagman uh, and Linda Gray, some of the two great actors um, in television, uh, who are now extras in this scene. Mm-hmm. And so they would start improving lines because you have to be saying something. You can't mm-hmm. just say watermelon, watermelon all the time. <laughs> and so they would improvise in character. And mm-hmm. you go, now, Sue Ellen, I got this big important job going on. And you see this button, this button is missing. Now, what kind of why for you? to? Oh, I'm so sorry, JR. Oh, I'll get right on. Well, that's right. You do that. And the people in the editing booths were seeing this and they're saying, this is the show. <laughs> this these two, uh, and so over the course of the first couple of seasons, all of the uh, focus gets put onto Jr. Mm-hmm. And by the time you get into the second and third season, Dallas becomes a phenomenon. That mm-hmm. that's um, it, it just hits at the right time. Uh, there is so much going on culturally with disco and urban cowboy and Texas. A lot of people moving to Texas and Dallas and uh, uh, all of the glitz and glamour and the wealth and the. Larry Hackman talks about the success of the show came a large part because of the recession that was going on at the time, that people were home on Friday nights because they had no money. And then they get to stay and watch other people play around with money Mm -hmm. uh, and get their comeuppance. Uh, So this was a huge phenomenon. And so they close out uh, the third season and they decide to film four more episodes. And they're not exactly sure what they're going to do, but then the writers think of the idea of shooting J.R. And so in the (laughs) summer of 1980, they uh, create this four-story arc to make it look like anybody could have done it, Mm -hmm. all of them could have mm-hmm. hated JR enough to shoot him. And so they shoot him in the summer and they the writers don't know, the producers don't know. Nobody knows how they're going to end the story. At the same time, Larry Hackman's contract is up. <gasps> so he goes to the producers and says, "This is the perfect time. I can walk away right now." Mm-hmm. Or you can start paying me $250,000 an episode <gasps> and increase it every year. Mhm. They caved and yeah. they gave him 250 for every episode and they increased the amount every year. Dallas would run another 11 years. By the time Dallas ended, Larry Hagman was one of the richest actors mm-hmm. in television. Uh, so the summer of 1980, 
the world goes crazy. Who shot JR? It's buttons, it's t-shirts, it's TV guide covers, it's a topic in presidential campaigns. Uh, it is everywhere. Uh, and on top of all this, the, the season's supposed to start in September, but then there's a writer's strike. So we're 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 delaying it even more into November of 1980. There were uh, uh it, it, it was everywhere. It was in uh, bars would have bets on on who uh, who shot JR. Um Larry goes to England over the summer uh to see his mother uh perform uh on the stage there and the queen mother goes to Larry and says, "You have to tell me who shot JR?" No, no. And he's like, I'm sorry, I can't even tell you, ma'am. Uh, and the, it, it's everywhere. By the time you get to November of 1980, restaurants would be shut down so that people could get home and watch th- their television sets. Um, uh, the, the Turkish parliament stopped so that all of the people could go to their homes and watch the conclusion of who shot JR. Oh um, in the United States, uh, there were, uh, let me see here, uh, 83 million people in the United States watched the episode. 350 million people around the world watched mm. the episode of who shot JR. Uh, this was must-see TV. This was, this was the highest-rated episode uh, in television history. Uh, it would be beaten three years later by the MASH finale, but up to that point, this was the highest-rated episode ever in the history of television. Um, the show continues going on into the 80s, and there are all sorts of twists and turns that go on. And uh, Larry Hagman, uh, another condition was that he started directing and uh so he starts directing some of the episodes of dallas and starts directing episodes of other television shows as well um one of the i i some people might be listening to all this and say okay he sounds fun and all but what does this really have to do with history like what was changed dallas is one of the reasons that the cold war comes to an end all of the uh, communist leaders, especially in places like Romania, Ceausescu, he uh, policed what people could watch, as you do in a, a, a communist country. And so there was only going to be about three hours of television that people could watch that was not propaganda from the government. And so he buys the rights to Dallas to show it in Romania, to show the people how corrupt and how awful these capitalist pigs are in America Mm. and how grateful they should be that they're not like these horrible people like the (laughs) Ewings. But all the people did was see television and see all the things, the blue jeans and the Mercedes Mm -hmm. and, and the food and the dancing and all the things that these people had access to that they did not Mm -hmm. because of their system of government. And within three or four years, Ceausescu was shot about 200 times. Oh, my. Uh, the whole uh, East Berlin, the same thing. The television would be beamed right across that wall into East Berlin, and they would see. Uh, uh, Larry talks about how he had this friend who was uh, uh, an up and up in, in, in the Soviet Union who would trade him uh, the nicest, fanciest beluga caviar for tapes of Dallas. Wow. And so uh, he would uh, send these tapes over to the Soviet Union and they would clone them hundreds of times and distribute them throughout the Soviet Union. And by 1989, 1991, 
The whole wall had collapsed. Mm -hmm. uh, and Dallas was a part of all of that. Uh, a worldwide phenomenon. He becomes known everywhere. Uh, for the rest of his life, he would make a living off of JR. There would be uh, Dallas uh, conventions uh, that he would go and visit internationally in Germany and Russia and England uh, and, and get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to make these appearances as JR. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you just... Uh, uh, from my own perspective, I uh, traveled to Ireland uh, a few years ago, and when I got into the cab with one of my great friends, uh, the the cabbie there asked us, uh, "Well, tell me, what, where are you from? Where are you from?" And we said, uh, "We're we're from we're from Texas." And he goes, "Oh, oh, tell me, do you know Jr. Do you know Jr." <laughs> And, and my friend, he, he didn't know what he was talking about. I was like, oh, yes, we're friends with all the Ewings. <laughs> uh, so it, it becomes uh, this idea internationally people associate Larry Hagman and his portrayal uh, and all the rest of the Ewings and the whole show with Texas and with America. <laughs> uh, so it becomes this great symbol of, uh, of so much. Uh, the show ends in 1991. One of the longest running uh, uh, episodic television shows uh, of all time. Uh, in 1995, he uh, would undergo a liver transplant. Oh. Uh, and uh, just a few months after the liver transplant, um, he uh, was discovered by the National Enquirer uh, in a bar uh, drinking wine, yeah. uh, saying, well, you know, I've got a new liver. <laughs> I got a new filter. Mm. Uh, so... Uh, the, he 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 really enjoyed uh, uh, his his uh, wine and, and his uh, alcohol. Uh, he continues to do acting and directing, and he was known as one of the great television directors. That he was always on time and under budget, and uh, he was uh, directing one of Carol O'Connor's um, "In the Heat of the Night" in the eighties. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, the, the, they're leaving two hours before they were expected to leave, uh, because he had got everything on time and had gotten all the shots that he needed. And one of the makeup, uh, people, uh, uh stopped him as he was leaving the set and said, I, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to thank you. I, I, uh, I was married just a, a few weeks ago and, um, my husband has never seen me in the daylight because I'm always on the set until the late hours of the night uh, to thank you so much. And he always got a kick out of that. Then he's just doing his job. But when you actually do your job, people are very grateful. <laughs> um, he uh, uh, and his wife uh, start doing these um, jacuzzis and doing uh, uh, massage uh, areas and spas. Uh, they uh, eventually uh, move from Malibu to Ojai and kind of create a whole uh, complex there called Heaven. Um, and uh, in 2011, Dallas uh, returns uh, to television on TNT, and he had such a great time uh, reprising the role of Jr. He just loved being Jr. <laughs> and uh, he would continue filming until uh, he he passed away from throat cancer in 2012. Mm. Um, Larry Hagman, uh, I mean, he's one of the greats. He's one of the great actors. As a Texan, uh, he's one of the great Texans to look up to. Uh, he's one of my personal fashion heroes. Um, uh, no one puts together an ascot and a Stetson like he does. Uh, he He's uh, one of the greats. And, um, you know, uh, I, I, I'm not exactly quite sure about uh the chart that we have here right uh, i i think that 
Um, this is a great chart for Jr. It is. But, it's perfect um, for Jr. Uh, I, I, he was so different from Jr. From the LSD, the yeah. Mad Monk, the uh, the fact that he stayed with one woman the whole time. Uh-huh. The, um, there was definitely lessons and karma to be worked out with the mom. Um, it, it really bothered him how she kind of continuously abandoned him to focus on her own career, but later came to terms with that and had a good relationship with her mm-hmm. um but uh you, i would be expecting more about entertainment and more about being a great actor right i mean he was a great negotiator and he was very good with his money mm-hmm. and uh, and he used his power to help a lot of people so mm-hmm. there's little bits and pieces that make a lot of sense here but um there are a lot of things that i i don't know if they all add up yeah i do not think this is the right time of birth at all in fact when you think about all of the guys that we've done that have Sag rising, I think Larry Hagman is more like Sag rising. If he was, you know, for one, all right, if we take this axis and we move it, right, and we put this here, that moves all of this stuff around the chart. It puts his Mars in the 12th house, which would be I mean, either that or he could have Leo rising. This could be backwards, you know? He could have Leo rising. He could have Leo. He could have Jupiter in the first house, you know? But I do not think that this is the right birth time for him. I think this is the right birth time for JR, maybe. But I don't think it's the right birth time for Larry Hagman. I mean, if we just, you know, shift all this stuff around, it's all going to go to different places and we will have a whole different ballgame. You know, uh, yeah. it isn't going to change his Neptune and Virgo at six degrees with his odd experimentation with drugs. But I don't know. Neptune is a difficult place in Virgo because uh, Virgo likes to be on top of things, you know. And Neptune is, you know, is the veil. It's, it's, and it's also very much, uh, the, the planet of the dark side of that could be very addictive. Also, there's a dark side to Virgos that can be very strange. <laughs> the dark side of Virgo can be, um, I want to say like, uh, odd like uh quirky you know what i mean uh having issues with um uh different types of 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 mental situations but i mean everybody's everybody has a dark side with that but virgo the light side of virgo is very very hard working which he was he was a very hard worker he worked his whole life you know but um it, this is another one that we should probably move it around the chart and see what fits. I mean, his look, the way he looks, he has that boy next door look, even yeah. when he's being JR, which is very sad rising. Yeah. Um, but he's very, uh, he could also have Leo rising, you know? So there's ways to look at this, to move this all around uh, but I, I do not feel confident that we have the right birth time in this situation. 
Well, like, and a, somebody could have, you know, put that birth time there as it being 420. Like, yeah, that's Larry Hagman, you know, because of whatever his history or whatever. But I, 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 I don't think we have the right birth time. Well, in a way, I'm almost grateful that um, we're, we're not done with this chart, that there's still going to be some things to look at. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to reveal everything to everyone at this very moment, but um, <laughs> there's the possibility that in the very near future, uh, we'll be hearing a lot more from uh, the Ewings and the Barneses and uh, <laughs> all of the people over at South Fork. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I think that that will give us a great opportunity to take another look at at um, Larry Hagman's chart and move everything about and uh, maybe see if we can get a, a better accurate time for him. <laughs> well, I think we, if, if all goes to plan, uh, Chandler, we will definitely have m many opportunities to do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I think on our scale of right on the money to way out in outer space, this one mm -hmm. is somewhere in the middle. Uh, it, it is, uh, I think it, there's a lot of things that, that might make sense, but we need to get those compartments and houses. Mm -hmm. We need to get the houses in order. Mm -hmm. you know? So, um, but I, I, I think that uh, we'll, we'll be able to do that in, in the future. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, that uh, wraps up uh, this episode and wraps up our season uh, of History and <laughs> Retrograde. Uh, we'd like to uh, thank you all so much for listening. If you'd like to uh, reach out and support the show, we have all of the links provided in the show description to our Facebook, our Instagram, our YouTube. We are uh, having new episodes uh, uh, published. Uh, they were uh, podcast episodes a few years ago, um, but new videos of our first season are being posted every Monday. Uh, so please take a look at those. Uh, it might uh, help you uh, in figuring out uh, how these are supposed to look if you uh, take a look at some of those episodes. Uh, and uh, please uh, like and share and subscribe and ring the notification bell and all the things that those young people tell you to do uh, <laughs> when it, uh, talking about those YouTube things. We really want to build up our numbers there. Uh, also, if you would like to support us, uh, we have a link to our PayPal account. Every little bit helps us in producing a better quality show and expanding our audience. And if you would like to be your very own Mystery History guest, we can make that happen. Uh, just uh, reach out to the email provided, uh, Chandler's Mom at HistoryAndRetrograde.com. She can get with you with all, all the details on how to make that happen. That is true. And I'm having so much fun doing your charts. And, you know, you can just go to www.historyandretrograde.com and get to everywhere we are. You can get to all the podcasts and you can get to the YouTube channel. And I just want to say I'm very excited about the YouTube channel because I'm putting a lot of work into it and making sure that if there's any corrections that need to be done, you guys can actually see the actual chart as we discuss it. And we are working on a campaign to get 500 subscribers. It used to be a thousand. Now YouTube has redone it. So we only need 500 subscribers to get to the place where we can make a nickel. I think it's a nickel channel. Every uh -huh. time somebody watches the show, a nickel would be cool. But um, also, I just, I, hey, 
uh, uh, the show, it's really growing on YouTube because um, I have to pay a lot of attention to YouTube right now because I'm doing all that work. And uh, as we make this podcast right now, Big Nose Kate has jumped out in front of everybody else and she's got like 120 views right now. And before that, it was Jimmy Stewart at like 70. So this is really starting. I mean, I, you guys might, might not think that's a lot, but for us, that's a lot. And uh, I'm very excited about it. I also would love to hear from you. I am doing charts for so many of you and I love chatting with you and I love going over your charts with you. So please email me and I will set up a time for you. I'm going to miss you all. So I'm talking a lot because <laughs> we're going to be gone for a minute before we come back. So uh, enjoy watching the YouTube um, episodes and I'll continue to put those up every week. I do not get a hiatus, but um yeah thank you for everything thank you for being there thank you for all the places that you tune in to listen it's so exciting for a channel to tell me the numbers and hear that there are people just everywhere listening to us and it's so cool thank you thank you all so very much uh we will uh be back with you very soon and uh as always in conclusion as long as your houses are in order and the stars are aligned everything will be just fine Everything's going to be just fine. Thank you so much for listening. We love you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.